Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. Welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. And welcome to this, the second part of the American Le Mans series special that we've been running on the Historic Racing News radio show. And uh, this time I want to talk to some of my guests about the important things that they have taken away from what seems to have been one of the most cornerstone pieces of the whole of sports car racing. So I'm delighted to uh, welcome back to our virtual roundtable, Graham Tyler, Joe Bradley and Jim Rowland. Gentlemen, um, hello and welcome back to the table. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, Hello, Paul. Paul. Right, so this month we're going to take um, a personal view of some of those memories that you you all hold. And I think probably most of those you've shared over the years, but uh, let's put them all together in one place. But, uh, and a good place to start is to talk about the cars. Joe Bradley, what were your favourite or standout cars of that period? You know what, Paul? You, you, you might be surprised about this because, you know, the, the, the iconic cars that came out of the American Le Mans series, the Audi R8, you know, the Panos LMP Roadster, it's hard not to choose uh, one of those cars, but that would be obvious. For me, I'm going to choose the car that kind of blew me away. When I first um, became involved with the American Le Mans series, with the inaugural Petit Le Mans, uh, which we discussed last week, um, it was the Riley and Scott Mark III. It was a car that I hadn't seen before, let alone been up close. And this car was, was what I want to say about this car is it was kind of a pure race car. It looked like a sports racer, open topped. Um, it was a tube frame chassis construction with carbon fiber panels to make the thing stiff. Um, and there was a, there was room in the back for, everything from a Ford V8 to the Chevrolet V8 to even an Oldsmobile, I think we've seen um, run in that, in that chassis. So for me, not the obvious one, but when this car, and it was run by, you know, in fact, it won, it won the first American Le Mans series, Elliot Forbes Robinson, with the Dyson car. Um, but another team to run that car, uh, Raffinelli, comes to mind. Um, there was something about this car that was completely and utterly visceral when it, pulled away from a pit stop, the V8 noise, the power, the, the ground literally <laughs> shook beneath your feet. And you it was kind of like a shockwave that hit you. If you stood behind the car, which being a, a sickle geek that I am, I tended to be in that spot and get the full blast of the exhaust. I know, I'm probably <laughs> going to die of some lung disease or something, or all the fumes and stuff that I breathed, I breathed in at that time. But for me, um, I bet you're surprised at that one, aren't you? That for me, the Riley and Scott Mark III was just there was just something about that car, that and I think it's kind of like it's the first time you walk into a track and you see a race car, you never forget that point. And I think that was the car that blew me away. 
And that's very much an American car, isn't it? It's, yeah. you know, as you say, tube frame, big V8, which we Brits perhaps don't get enough of. So, yeah, it's a four well, or 5,000 car on steroids, really. Yeah, the, the thing is, Paul, it was quickly made to look agricultural by comparative terms to when the Audis turned up um, with the Audi R8, which was kind of like, you know, 21st century race car. Um, and in fairness to the Rally and Scott Mark III, it was an early 90s car that was still racing well into the 2000s. And yeah. it was a good, solid customer car. It was robust. It wasn't um, It wasn't demanding. It, from the way I, the, what I like to say about a, a race car is it wasn't emotional because it just, you know, it didn't get, it didn't get wound down by its emotions. It just went round and round and round. It was solid as a rock. And you knew that, you know, if the, the cars that were going to finish, the Rally and Scott Mark III would have been one of them. Graham, you, um, you <laughs> yeah. obviously were, were in at the beginning. Were, were, was it those early days cars that had a, a memory? Uh, yeah, I, I didn't dip into ALMS until 2002. So I'm Johnny come lately. But um, but like Joe, I'm into the big V8 noise, but my big V8 noise has a roof and um, it's called a Corvette. And it was the GTS class that actually blew me away when I went to Sebring. Um, yes, it was great to see prototypes, but I'd seen prototypes over in Europe. And uh, what I hadn't seen quite so much of was something as startling as, as the, the Corvettes. I loved them then. I love them now. I'm not not keen on the new mid-engine jobby, but um, every iteration of, of the V8 Monster, that works for me. <laughs> and Jim, what's, uh, what's your takeaway? Well, we used to joke that the American Le Mans series technically was an embarrassment of riches because we had the Audi that not only started with the, the R8 and then went to the diesel, the TDI. You had the, the cars that raced in the early days under the 900-kilogram cat classification and the 675 classification. And that's, frank, frankly, where, where I ended up being the most fascinated, both with the the early uh, 675 cars like Dyson ran – uh, and, and that would give the Audis. Uh, they were they were the first one. They want the, the first car, the six seventy five car to win overall was at Sears Point with uh, yeah. Weaver and Leitzinger behind the wheel. But the cars that I will remember the most uh, were the Porsche Spider and the Acura, because they took yeah. that smaller formula and they gave Audi everything they could handle, and it made for two seasons of absolutely. Fantastic racing, and I would have to say that that those couple of seasons when you had Audi and Porsche and Acura all racing there together, they were probably the the, the high water mark for the series, and that the, the Porsche Spider and, and the Acura that the Andretti and the uh, brought to the to the table, those cars were absolutely fantastic. So with that, I mean, obviously by then the series had evolved into something much more technical and and probably we have to be thankful to audi for raising that particular bar but then peugeot did it again with their car didn't they yeah but but peugeot only came to sebring and and petit so they would they would race at the races that would benefit them for testing for Le Mans, which was at the beginning of the season and they won yeah. in 2004 10, I think, with, uh, yeah. with uh, yeah. Hugh de Chanac. 
um, winning. One of the most emotional victories I've ever seen, I think. Uh, and they would show up at Petite. But during the regular season, it was the it was the more homegrown iteration of cars um, that would that that were the regular cars that would that would run, and they would give Audi everything they could they could give them. Those were sensational races, and often often down to seconds after after the the full race distance. So, wh- why was that? Because I think probably. In Europe, we had been used to, um, as as Max Mosley famously said once, it's like a game of chess. That Group C, even with all that we we all love about Group C, um, you rarely got that that grandstand finish in many races. Whereas it was something that you saw very much more in the American Le Mans series. I think it was the format of the races, the two hour and forty five mm-hmm. minute format was absolutely uh, fantastic. And then you sprinkled that in with some longer races, Sebring, Petite, that sort of thing. And people got used to racing and racing hard for the entire time. And if it wasn't in – the other thing to remember, guys, is that sometimes we talk about all these great finishes. Well, there were times when – when Audi would just put their absolute foot on the throat of the competition and win the race by, I can remember at Sears Point, Alan McNish being irritated because of some comments that were made before the race, and he lapped the field in his first stint. And then uh, there were other races where where they would have that kind of victory margin, but nobody realized it because in the LMP2 and the GTLM and the GTD categories, you always had great racing, whether it be – the, at Sebring, where the the Ferrari and the the uh, flying lizard car banging doors all the way to the to the checkered flag, uh, to Laguna Seca, where the where again fly the, the Porsche with with uh, Bergmeister behind the wheel and and Magnussen in the in the Corvette banging wheels and having that huge crash at the finish line, everybody always remembered that there were there were great race finishes because you had four classes of racing that were so evenly matched that there was always one class that was going to have a great finish, even if the other two were, right. were, were blowouts or other three were blowouts. There are some great, there's some great circuits to race at too. I mean, I'd, I'd grown up with European racing where yes, there are some, there's, there are some outstanding places still to go racing, but a lot of them have been, have been, um, uh, emasculated almost um for the for the safety reasons and one of my lasting impressions of ALMS was um european uh, style they said but american attitude and the american attitude to circuits was way way different from anything we were doing over in, in europe you know um there were they were i mean places like sebring um they're a car breaker and 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 a driver breaker it's brutal absolutely brutal um and and then you you put um cars like these around lime rock it had hosted can-am in its time and and you know they've got some terrific racing uh most sport again what a circuit uh road america road atlanta you know everywhere we went and raced um to me was just an absolute joy i think i think if you take the, the places like Road Atlanta, uh, Mosport, if those circuits were in Europe, 
you'd have had a chicane at turn one at Road Atlanta. You would probably have yeah. had a chicane at, at turn one at Mosport. And you probably would have had a chicane at the back at the end of the back straight as well. And and I can go on. And I think as well as these I, iconic circuits that um, just brought out the best in, in sports car racing and, and endurance racing, add into that, add into that mix the two hour forty five minute format and the intensity of getting a good result was just exacerbated by the fact that you had two hours of 45. So it was basically a two hour 45 sprint. Pit stops became crucial. And so did everything about how the team was run, how the pit wall uh, ran the race, everything. The intensity was just at a peak. And that's why, uh, in my opinion, and certainly many, many others, at the time of the American Le Mans series, this was the pinnacle of endurance sports car racing internationally. Yeah. The, yeah. The, there was Absolutely. there was no better international sports car series. It was kind of like, and, and I certainly felt that I was watching a world championship because the series attracted uh, teams, drivers, uh, engineers from literally all over the world. Everybody wanted a race in the American Le Mans series to the point where I remember having a mate of mine, Warren Hughes, who was a, a, a bit of a legend in British Formula 3 and, tour, and British Touring Cars, and British Formula 3 champion Kelvin Burt, not on the same occasion, but on separate occasions, came across and crashed in my hotel room. These two young drivers, who were they wanted to be part of this, and they came over on, on, on a, a couple of times, I think, but I, I distinctly remember, um, I distinctly remember Warren crashing on me in my hotel, and uh, Kelvin Burt, who were familiar names to people in the UK. But everybody, mm-hmm. everybody wanted to be part of this series. That's interesting, and, and hearing hearing what you've all said about the way the circuits were, perhaps very different from what we would be used to in Europe and particularly in the UK. It's it's strange to me because I think our perception would be that the USA is probably the most litigious um, nation in the world. It still is. I, mean, I, think, I think we're catching up fairly quickly here in the UK. But, you know, if you fall over on the pavement, you sue somebody. And that it's interesting that these circuits were probably what we would have perceived as being more dangerous and yet they was they survived jim is is that is that a fair comment that's a very fair comment because while we're litigious we're not a nanny state so it there is a certain amount of that stuff that is just let go uh if you're willing to pay the insurance premium that Nobody's going to come tell you to put a chicane in your racetrack. So that's kind of what it was all about. And to put a, a button on the uh, on the other part of it that we were just talking about when Joe was saying that the two-hour and 45-minute race and all the pressure and everything else, that mentality of having to perform and having to perform right now was carried into Sebring and Petit and then into Le Mans when Audi yeah. – who was spending 12 races a year under this intense pressure, learned how to, you know, Le Mans now has become a 24-hour sprint race. It's it's all on stints and, and that sort of stuff. All of that kind of racing came to the fore during the American Le Mans series 
because there was a sea change in the mentality of the teams. And it's exactly what Joe said. And that's why, and we've seen it go all the way across all of endurance racing that now it's a flat out sprint. There's no more running to a time or, or, or any of that stuff. Um, as far as the circuits go, um, the other thing that the, that the American Le Mans series did that no other sports car racing series did was they went to the streets. They, we, oh, yes. we raced at Washington, D.C. We raced in Baltimore. We raced at Long Beach. Miami. Um, we raced in Miami. Miami exactly. was unforgettable. Miami was yeah. unforgettable. There was yeah. a piece of track in Miami, guys, you, you probably remember, where it, it was nothing to do with design. It was just unfortunate. But the cars were launching about a foot in the air. And before we got to the race, we had to shave this hump out of the track because literally we were we would have had no one finishing the race um and the, the Miami was just phenomenal the, the venue was just phenomenal to be down there and not only that Joe Miami go to Baltimore where you crossed the railroad tracks twice in a lap yes you crossed <laughs> a railroad track twice in a lap in and you know what and the, and the attitude the the attitude was that and i think that it's the attitude that we've kind of grown away from certainly in europe it's um you know what that that curb's not right is it if i put my wheel over there i'm going to damage my car and really we're going to have to change the curb and the attitude would be well don't put your wheel there yeah thank you yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> modern, formula one. Quite modern formula one thank you very much quit ruining yeah. the circuits and tell these clowns to stay within the lines which is Absolutely. exactly Jim, why those, why those American circuits can survive because people treated them with respect because you had to or they would bite you. Mm, one of the good things, point, very good yeah, point. One of the things that we used to talk about with Virginia International Raceway was it was consequence without calamity, and there was enough runoff there that you could go off and you could go way off. I mean, you could you could change zip codes. And and not hit anything, <laughs> but you'd lose eight or nine positions, which is a it, again, it's a penalty, but you haven't destroyed your cars. But at Mostport and Road America and the street circuits, you put a foot wrong, you put a wheel oh. wrong, and you've you're just you're in a smoking pile of of metal and rubber and carbon fiber uh, well, can, at the end of it. Can you remember, Jim, when? It, it must have been 1999 because it was the first time we turned up in Mosport. Joe Winglehock was in the uh, the BMW LMP car. That's right. And he refused to race there. Now, he refused to race there because I think there was a lot of ghosts at Mosport because that's where his brother Manfred was killed. And, you know, he, he saw the track and it literally, a guy like Joe, smoking Joe Winglehock was was apprehensive about driving at this trap and all right the, there was a history there with regards to his brother and stuff so it was a little bit deeper than him just not being happy with the track but that's the extent of how you look at you you would look at those circuits you would drive around in your road car and go oh this is a bit sort of this is gonna get my <laughs> this is gonna tweak my uh what's it's isn't it you know it's like it, 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 it's what it's what motorsport, you know, albeit should be, but with regards to you know, you've got to keep it safe. Certainly, in the day and age we're in now, 
even though we're only talking about what twenty five years ago or whatever it is, um, there was a different uh, mental attitude, uh, wasn't there? There was a different mental attitude, wasn't there? Oh, very, very much so. And in fairness to Winklehawk, the racetrack the day he showed up to test had not changed one iota from the day that his brother perished. So that place, that yeah. place still is daunting. And I don't care who you are. If turn two at Mosport doesn't give you pause, then you probably have no business being in a race car because you're just suicidal. You've got no imagination. I was just going to say, as Joe <laughs> likes to say, you've got no imagination. Yeah. Uh, with the, with with all of those exciting tracks that we're talking about, were there any over the years that didn't work? Because the the series went to a, a lot of different tracks over over its uh, its run. Were there any that didn't work for you, Joe? Uh, no. Um, I thought it a bit odd they went to Lime Rock um, because it's such a it's like. It's like running a race at Goodwood um, or Croft. Only faster. Um, only, yes. Yeah. Um, it, it was a bit odd to see these huge, um, you know, 200 miles an hour um, LMP prototypes uh, running around a track that had, let, I think it was a 50-second or 47-second lap. Um, uh, that got down to 45 by the time they got yeah, racing. 45 wow. seconds. I mean, that's almost an oval, you know. Um, for me, though, I think the answer to the question is quite a simple no, Paul, because um, each circuit um, brought about its own challenge and yeah. its own fear factor and its own character. And, you know, you went to the Miami street course and then you went, look at, look at Sebring. You went, Sebring's unique. It's quite literally unique. There isn't anywhere in the world that you run on the same concrete slabs that Jack Brabham pushed his car across the finish line to win the 1959 Formula One World Championship. And there they are, the same concrete. It hasn't been resurfaced. It's the same concrete. Where where else in the world would you find that? Where else in the world would be crazy enough to consider that a racetrack? But <laughs> Sebring, yeah, you're right. Sebring you're right. is Sebring is just you. You know, it's one of those places where you know you go there and you just feel that you you. It's like it must be like entering Westminster Abbey. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like wow, how did they build this? You know, it's 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 very much like that when you cross that bridge. Uh, and I've, most of the tracks over there, I felt I felt like that. I've done both, Joe, and the person that guards the entrance to Westminster Abbey has all those teeth. <laughs> That's a story. The, 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 in answer to your anticipated question, Paul, uh, no, there was no other didn't work for me. I picked up a vibe that people weren't that keen on going to Trois-Rivières, um, but I enjoyed it um, on the couple of occasions I went there. We only went once went to Washington to run around the parking lot of what was then the still allowed to be called the, the Redskins uh, stadium. Um, and that was an amazing race uh, won by the Panos um, by seconds uh, from, from Audi uh, in searing heat, absolutely searing heat. Um, so no, there's nowhere I, I, I didn't en enjoy. They were all, um, fabulous circuits. They all had their own bit of personality. Um, Sebring, just to go back to that for a second, um, bear in mind, was usually um, the first race of the season. 
So, you know, what, what a place to begin. If anything's going <laughs> to check you out, it's going to be Sebring. For me, Paul, the only one that didn't work, um, the guys have pointed out Washington, we were only there once, but that was because the promoter was a thief. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. Um, we went to Three Rivers, but that venue has always struggled to keep – I don't understand why, because it's a wonderful venue – uh, heck, I, I remember going there when I was still in college in 1979 um, for single-seat Can-Am races. So they've always been right on the fringe of hosting whatever the top form of sports car racing is at the time. Uh, but it just didn't seem to work out. But the one that didn't work was Texas. Uh, we went to the Roval there. The first time we went, it was uh, flaming hot. And the second time we went, it was the, they tried to do it in the early spring, uh, early spring. Hell, it was still winter. It was before Sebring. It was in, it was in late, uh, uh, February that we went there and the weather was horrendous again, only in the other direction. Uh, and there was no interest. There was no interest. I mean, even to this day, Coda, other than the formula one race, because it brings crowds from all over the United States and frankly, all over the world, um, that's the only event that doesn't struggle at Coda for for attendance. It's just not a motorsports. It's a stick and ball market. It's not a motorsports market. And yet, you know what? I, I absolutely loved to see those cars on a Roval. Uh, I say Roval. That's a that's an oval road course. Um, so we went to Charlotte. We went to Texas. We went to Las Vegas. Um, this is the days before the current IMSA, which started season on the Daytona road course. Um, so seeing these cars on a banked oval coming through the bank turns was a phenomenal sight. And it's something that we're kind of familiar with these days with the current IMSA series um, starting at Daytona. It's kind of like, you know, that's the norm to see these current LMP cars uh, racing on an oval. But back then, that was quite... That was quite unique, and I, I absolutely loved that. I, I, I did love that. Clearly, the other thing that we need to talk about is that huge variety of different drivers that we we saw in the series, um, people from all over the world. And uh, Jim caught up with a hero of the American Le Mans series just a couple of days ago. Joining us now on our American Le Mans series roundtable is a man who – was one of the stars of the series. And I think you at one point, Johnny O'Connell, were the only guy that had done every American Le Mans series race. Is that true? Yeah, believe it or not. uh, You know, and I was very, very fortunate. You know, that was such a glorious time in sports car racing. And uh, and it's it's funny, Jim, I remember, you know, I think it was at Mostport, they gave me a plaque for uh, being the first driver to get to 100 consecutive starts there. And so, uh, I mean, with the, the manufacturer involvement and the, the high, high level of, of drivers internationally competing, uh, I mean, it was, it was a glorious time and really, you know, you got to give pretty much all the credit to this, uh, of that success to, to Don Panos for, for, you know, having a vision and uh and 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 a vision that he created really quickly having only been in the sport for a year or two before he came up with the american lamar series in the mid 90s you had a a a pretty good 
deal with with Nissan. Um, and then the whole sport kind of went into a bit of a malaise. And Andy Evans was the owner of the series when Don really started to get involved in racing. How did you hear about Don? How did you, how did, what was your first kind of interactions with Don? Well, it was interesting, you know, and to, to, to go back even just a, a few years, I, I was lucky in that when I, you know, when Nissan brought me on, you know, as a factory driver, that was the end of the Camel GT days when there was mm-hmm. big money, mm-hmm. big teams. Mm-hmm. It was, it was a show. I mean, you go to Portland and have over a hundred thousand people there. And uh, so, and, and then, you know, as you said, you know, when Camel pulled out, it would slid downhill very quickly andy evans came in to to try to make it work and uh and and i think to help andy evans and then I, you know it's funny i i well i mean that's the truth and and I, I remember going to sebring and and there are these like cars that are crazy loud and crazy looking and that was the first time i heard about yeah no this guy named don panos he invented the nicotine patch and uh and so i'm like get out of here and uh so and at that time i was i think i was driving for henry camferdam or something in the uh in the uh in the prototypes and That's so right. I, yep. I, I get introduced to don and so like you know don I, honestly looks wise could have been my father you know, I mean, he's, he's, well, he's a isn't that the truth. Yeah. And yeah. so being a, being a cheeky guy, I'm like, Hey, not nah, Johnny O'Connell, you know, we got a huge problem here. And he's like, Hey, Johnny, nice to meet you. What's that? I'm like, well, here I am a redhead. I'm Irish. I could practically be your son and I'm not driving for you. Right. And so, uh, so, and then he, he kind of laughed and, uh, but you know what? I, uh, I managed to get his, his phone number and I literally called Don every two or three weeks. Hey, Don, I want to drive for you. Hey, Don, I want to drive for you. And eventually he gave in and, uh, and brought me on board. And so, uh, so yeah. And that was, that was the beginning of everything. So you drove the GTR before you drove the LMP1 car. Yes. Yes. Oh, so wow. The, the, Did you ever yeah, drive yeah, no, Sparky? I, I, Did you ever drive the electric car? I was the first to drive Sparky. I actually drove, flew to uh, to a uh, airport. I can't remember what, where it was in England, and ran it up and down the the runways. And it was funny because in the in the first time, you know, that we're we're running that car, everybody's walking around in shorts and t-shirts. By the time the thing shows <laughs> shows up at Petit Le Mans, everybody's like in full on rubber bodysuits working on that thing. <laughs> and uh, so that was, uh, but you know what, what to think about this, just think about, take a second and think about this, the, you know, that guy that has the crystal ball, Don did a hybrid, you know, 15 oh. years before anybody else, you know? That's right. How did the uh, LMP1 car come about? How did you transition from the GTR to the LMP1 car? The main thing was Lamar, you know, trying to do well mm-hmm. at Lamar and win Lamar. And, you know, recognizing that, okay, we got to be, you know, in the prototype category. And Don always had this thing about, you know, uh, about it's got to be a front engine car, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, he liked to buck the trend, you know, he liked to prove people wrong. And so I think it was Andy Thorby, who was the engineer that basically, you know, changed what was the GT, the GT1 car into an LMP car. And the yeah the mannerisms of the car were were pretty darn similar and yeah we uh, you know I was very lucky you know uh, Jan Magnuson and I were the first to get a win with that car 
and uh, and it, and and we really, you know, there's a, I think I want to say it was ninety nine. Uh, we really probably had a decent shot at winning Le Mans, but there was a little bit of drama. It might have been two thousand, you know, between our electronic guys and the engine guys. Robert Yates were building our engines for us that year. And uh, and in pre-qualifying, I think we were second and third or third and fourth. Brabham qualifying one car, me qualifying the other. And then uh, sadly, you know, between the pre-qualifying, because at Le Mans, you used to pre-qualify and That's right. before, and then go yeah. back. You know, somehow or another, we mysteriously lost about, uh, I think it was about 15 miles an hour on the straightaway. Oh, and God. so, uh, so yeah, but that was actually the best overall finish that we got. So that year it was myself, uh, Hiroki Kato and Pierre Henri Raphael. And we finished fifth overall, which was, which was pr- a pretty stout performance for us. In show one of this uh, series, Joe Bradley and I were discussing that LMP one car and he, he posed a great question. He said, how did you guys drive that car given that you were so far back you know you always hear about how tough it is to drive a porsche because the engine's over the back wheels well in this case the the center axis of the car you're over the back wheels what was that thing like to drive it was i to be honest with you i dug it uh it uh it was definitely an unusual feel because the the sensation of oversteer was exaggerated on your body if you're sitting in the middle of the car you know, and the car steps out, you know, a foot or two in the back, your body's not moving a whole lot. But when you're the rear of the car, <laughs> your your physical, you know, body is moving more. So I think you developed a little bit better feel for the rear of the car and oversteer. Um, and so, but, but, you know, I think it's like, like any car gym, you know, you, you, you do some laps and you very quickly learn what it likes and what it doesn't like. And, you know, carrying, carrying, you know, carrying that towards the Delta wing. And I also got to do laps in the Delta wing, never raced it, but did a bunch of laps in it and testing and the Delta wing, you know, behaved differently, but you would very quickly realize, okay, this, this car, I got to drive like a formula three car. You know, I'm not going to drive this like a Corvette where the mass is all in the front. And so you, you, you adjust your style pretty quickly. But, uh, but yeah, that, that, uh, that Panos, the, the LMP car was, you know, that was a thundering beast. It was, it was a joy to drive. Now, the move then was to Corvette. Now, did that come about because of your success with Don? The, the true story is, is that, you know, they had brought in every year. There was a new team manager going into uh, at Panos every year, never kept the same guy running it. And uh, so they brought in a new guy and he and I, you know, he and I did not exactly see eye to eye on things. And uh, because he wanted European drivers, he didn't want an American. And uh, so, uh, so looking at what was going on and all that kind of stuff, there really weren't many opportunities in, uh, you know, in the prototype category. I couldn't see Audi, you know, hiring an American. And uh, so I, I literally, I, I got Feehan's, Doug Feehan's number. And I had raced, you know, uh, against him and GM back when they were running the Oldsmobiles. If you remember that in the GT1 days, you oh, know, yeah. in yeah. 93 through 95, we raced against them in the Aurora and, and I don't know what the other one was, but, uh, but so I got Doug's number and I went straight to voicemail, but being the cheeky guy I am, I'm like, Hey Doug, it's Johnny O'Connell. You might remember me from when I used to beat up on you on the Nissan and, <laughs> uh, and true story, dude. And which so, which uh, would have loved. 
Feehan, oh, yeah. I'm sure he loved that. Yeah, and so, uh, so, and I'm like, and literally, hey, if your dance card's not full for next year, I'd love to talk to you. And uh, literally eight hours later, you had an offer from them uh, to do all the, the big four, Daytona, Sebring, uh, Le Mans, and Petit Le Mans. And so very first race I do for GM, it's that big race, you know, in the C5. It's myself, Ron Fellows, Chris Neifel, and Frank uh, Freon. And the other cars, you know, the Earnhardts. Uh, Andy Pilgrim and Kelly Collins, you know, long story short, you know, we go out and we win the thing. And, uh, and then soon after that, Nifel got offered the job to, to be chief steward for cart and boom, spot opened up and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. And uh, very, very fortunate uh, for, for everything that I got to do with General Motors. Back to Don for a moment, uh, as we kind of wrap this up, you said it earlier, GTR Sparky, the front engine GTR, the LMP1 car, starting a new series. First question is, were you skeptical when the series started that he, he hadn't lost his mind? Because a lot of people did. And secondly, can you think of anybody that has done more for sports car racing than that man did? No, no. You know, and it's funny because at the as the Andy Evans, you know, era was showing all the chinks in its armor, there were probably about four or five guys, big players, big money guys. Yeah. That were that were looking and I won't name names, but they were looking to to buy it from Andy Evans. Okay. You know, and 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 they start complaining about this new rich guy coming in and trying to buy the thing and he doesn't know anything about the sport. But Don had the clarity of of not being biased in any way and just realizing well the, the only the, the important thing about this sport is Lamont so we've got to create a relationship with Lamont and and then we're going to call it the American Lamont series and we're going to call it for the fans i mean the marketing idea behind it but then you know the other thing Don was brilliant at was building relationships and so all of a sudden, you know, creating this new series based on the mall, you know, sanctioned by the ACO, you know, so a very European feel to it. And then you utilizing the ACO to engage Audi and Peugeot and Porsche and Ferrari and bringing and 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 and, and all those manufacturers seeing what uh what huge shows we were getting and how great the racing was, you know, most, you know, of, of my, my Corvette career was the heyday of the ALMS, you know, 2000, you know, through 2010. So it was Don's, you know, he had this, this amazing ability to, to really clearly see opportunity, but also how to fix things. And it literally, what did it take a year you know, two years to, to go from where an IMSA event was struggling to get cars and fans to now all of a sudden, you, you know, you, you, you have that same vision in your head that I do of what the, the grid looks like at the start before oh, Petit yeah. Le Mans, where oh, yeah. it is, yeah. it's, it's a, you know, it's like the world's biggest fraternity party around race cars, you know, and his legacy, even though he's, he's no longer with us, you know, will, will carry on for generations. And I, it is, but he, you know, it again, uh, 
getting back to your to to something that you said, I can't think of a person in my lifetime that has done more, did more for for sports car racing than than Don Panos. Johnny O'Connell, thank you for the time. I know you're busy still, and you're uh, even in these uh, strange times of COVID. You're doing a lot of stuff, working with your son. Best of luck to you and to him, and thank you for taking the time to chat with us on the Historic Racing News Radio Show. It is my pleasure, and uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime. Oh, yeah. That's that's definitely down the road. The Historic Racing News Radio Show. Jim, Johnny O'Connell played a, a huge role in the American Le Mans series, didn't he? He was one of the leading lights. As I said, he was one of the ones that competed in more events than, than anybody else when he when his time with Corvette Ended. He moved over to television and served as one of our analysts. So he was part of the depth and breadth of that series. And it was a series that, you know, we talk about the drivers, but to me it was more personalities because not only you had the drivers like Alan McNish and Tom Christensen, uh, but you also, and, and then you had Ron Fellows, and I'm sure the guys will have other names that 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 were special to, to them. But there were stars in and of themselves who weren't the drivers. Doug Feehan at Corvette became a major star in the American sports car scene. Uh, guys like Greg T. Nelson, Patrick Dempsey, uh, little Dindo Capello. Dindo Capello came to America, was embarrassed because he didn't speak what he felt was very good English. His English was fine. And he was in the shadow of Alan McNish and all of these big personalities. But when you got Dindo alone, and even with the camera, we had some of the greatest times and features with Dindo because he has got a huge devilish sense of humor and loves practical jokes and all of these, it was it was a family atmosphere in the paddock. So you got to see all of these personalities. Not only were they great drivers, they were personalities. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something which we're we're missing a bit now in various different forms of motorsport. But I'm not going to go into that. Graham, um, great drivers for you. Um, yes, right across the board, and and uh, ones that ones that stuck with me uh, early on were the JJ Lettos of this world. Um, some of the some of the European imports alongside the American teams, um, the 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 factory Porsche guys, the Sasha Marsons, Lucas Lua, who went on to have stellar um, uh, careers with with Porsche, both in the sorry Porsche. Both in um, in the GT class and then in the in the um, the LMP twos as well, um, um, and and working with the captain, of course. So there's another name for you. Yeah, you know, we, we haven't we, even we, got there, have we? No, <laughs> you know, um, wherever you turned, there, there there were people who would grab and hold your attention, and some of them were not were not the major stars. Some of them were the little guys, like the Robertson family, like um, the Brian Wilmots and um, the John Fields. Uh, um, oh, you know? I, oh, thank you, Graham. Brian. 
Brian Wilman. What you a personality, Brian Wilman, oh, the, the, the guy who who cashed out his Apple stock and became a racing personality. Absolutely fantastic story. And 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 just just larger than life. Well, quite literally in his case. <laughs> Joe, what about you? Who would you think of as being your um, your stars? My my, I'll come to my favourite ever driver in the American Le Mans series, and again, I think I think I may surprise some, um, but remember that this was like the where Formula One drivers came after their Formula One career died. You had the likes of JJ Leto, Olivia Barretta, McNish was in the American Le Mans series, went to F1 and came back. Um, um, David Brabham, um, Indy car star Simon Pagano, the you know. All of these superstars, Mick Asalo, there's more names coming to mind. I loved meeting and working with any American driver. Um, they made my life so much easier as a pit lane interviewer because with the likes of Ron Fellows, Johnny O'Connell, uh, Johnny O'Connell um, you, you asked these guys a question and it was as if they were reading your mind that they would just then go on and answer and then they would just they would give you a kind of a statement in the job that I used to do they give me a full statement without me asking about the incident and it was just a joy it was an absolute joy the the other the other characters remember though that you know the, the drama the soap opera behind all the closed doors all the garage doors or over the pit wall in american uh, sense of the term you know scott tucker there's a TV show. I think it's already been done, actually. There's a TV show behind the Level 5 operation and, and, and what that was all about. The um, people like Court Wagner, um, Didier Diverdiguez, a multiple motorcycle champion. Um, I think he came, I think he was a champion in the 675 class. Um, yes, he was. Yeah. Um, my favourite, though, of all of, of all the drivers I met was the was the bloke who won the inaugural championship, Elliot Forbes Robinson. He was mm. he still is one of the best guys to talk to. I still bump into him. We're, we're lucky enough to um, frequent the paddocks of the HSR series, um, and Elliot Elliot is 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 sometimes there. Um, but there was Elliot Forbes Robinson. There was there was me in 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 the paddock in the pit lane, and this guy who I'd seen. In books, I'd seen in videos from the Can-Am days, and there he is, um, in, in all his glory, and, and such a such a fantastic bloke to talk to, who always had five minutes. He would never ever turn around and say, "No, I haven't got time to talk to you." He would always have time to talk. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I've got to tell you a quick story, guys, about interviewing a particular driver, and it was in the very early days. Um, one Paul Newman, um, yes, Hollywood icon, Paul Newman came and raced in the American Le Mans series on more than one occasion. And I think this was at the second Petit Le Mans race at Road Atlanta. It might have been the spring Road Atlanta race in 99. But I remember Joe Widensall, our manager, said to me, whatever you do, do not ask Paul Newman any questions unrelated to racing. You must never ask him anything about anything outside of racing. So I'm like stood there and I'm determined to get an interview with Paul Newman, just so I can tick the box 
on my CV, I have interviewed Paul Newman, the movie star. So he comes in, he's in a Porsche, he gets out the car, and he's this slim, fit-looking racing driver type, even though he was 70, I think, 70 years of age, <laughs> I think, at this time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he takes his helmet off, and I'm expecting this guy to look like what he looked like in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Right. So, of course he's not. He's 70. So he takes his helmet off and he's got his back to me. And there I see this old guy with gray hair with his back to me. Then he turns around and he looks at me and I look into those blue eyes and I think, oh, my God, it really is Paul Newman. Oh, my God. I'm talking to Paul Newman. He was very reserved initially. So I talked to him, you know, about the racing, probably asked him about the tyres. When did those tyres start to go off? Whatever it was. And the, from the point that he realised that this little English guy with a microphone um, is not going to ask me any awkward questions. He's not going to ask me about what my favourite movie was. He's going to ask me um, uh, questions in context with the reason why I'm here. And when you think about the, the Paul Newman's motorsport history, there's a legend that, you know, we, 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 we very rarely talk about. But Paul Newman was part of this series. Yeah. I oh, think definitely. one of the things that goes to what you guys were talking about is in America, for race car drivers anyway, especially sports car racers. Now, the IndyCar guys are a little bit different. The NASCAR guys certainly nowadays are. But even, even long ago, the – press were not an adversary there was no adversarial relationship in europe there's an adversarial relationship between the drivers and the media that's that that rolls downhill from formula one all you know the 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 mindset of the driver is the press guy's out to get me he's out to find out what my next contract is he's out to he's out to screw me in america it's like they look around like you want to talk to me really Mm -hmm. oh Sure. What do you want to know? Because they're they were on second fiddle to the football guys, the basketball guys, the hockey guys, the baseball guys, and so when you see those stick and ball guys all have adversarial relationships with the press, the sports car guys don't. So it's an open field. I mean, you can ask them anything, and they will give you chapter and verse about what's going on out on the racetrack, what's going on with the team. There is nothing literally racing-wise that's off limits. And it's just, it it makes for a a wonderful atmosphere and makes for some great storytelling if you you do it right. Joe, when you were talking about um, talking tires with Paul Newman, I just had this this thought that you were going to say, are you going to put wets on because raindrops keep falling on my head? <laughs> no, you see, Paul, and that is the reason why I kept that job of being a pit lane interviewer. And, <laughs> you, you, and you did. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right there, Joe. That's, uh, that's fair comment. May I throw another name into the ring? Please. I, I offer the team Butch Leitzinger. Oh, yeah. Tough, tough racer. But absolutely charming man. 
Um, in fact, the whole family. I mean, Bob, Bob Leitzinger was was an absolute legend in 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 U.S. racing. Um, Butch is a chip off the old block. Absolutely. Um, but but what what nice guys? What really thoroughly decent people? And and you know, as soon as they they get out of the car, they they, they transform from this monster to to this this <laughs> thoroughly decent, lovable. Um, humorous um, person who will volunteer information that you didn't even ask for, um, and, and they were great. And it was sometimes it was the the peripheral people who appeared at, at races, which who were fun too. One of the interviews that I most enjoyed doing wasn't with an ALMS driver, so I apologise for going off piste, but it was with John Fitch. And John yeah. John Fitch and I sat down and talked for three quarters of an hour. Wow. And it was just stunning. Absolutely stunning. You but never had, get those opportunities. Butch, Butch Leitzinger provided probably the funniest moment in my television career. Again, this is a, a quick aside. We were doing Back to Three Rivers, the support race for the American Le Mans series at Three Rivers was the Trans Am series. And we were doing the television show for the Trans Am series. And Calvin Fish was my pit reporter. It was a pared down show. We only had one, a couple of guys in the booth, one pit reporter. And during the race, there, were, there had been a fair bit of controversy within the series that guys were experimenting with traction control. And the stewards felt that there was some sort of way that the guys were carrying devices in their on their person that would activate or deactivate the the traction control on the car. So the, with two or three laps left in the race, which wasn't a long lap at three rivers, the head of broadcasting for the trans am series comes on and says, Jim uh, on my headset. So we, we had communications with the, the, with the race stewards. And he says, we're not going to do victory lane is going to be delayed. And I says, well, but we're live. We can't, you know, we can't delay that. You might not get any interviews on the air if you delay it. He said, well, have Calvin just meet the guys at start finish line because we're going to stop the cars there before we let them go to victory lane. And I said, okay, can I ask why? And he, this went on back and forth. He wouldn't tell. And then finally he told me, he says, well, we're going to, we're going to search the drivers to make sure they don't have any devices on them. So I tried to quickly tell Calvin what was going on, and he got kind of the gist of it. But an ambulance pulls up at start-finish, and the three drivers get out of their cars, first, second, and third, and they Butch, Butch had won the race. And so Butch goes in first and goes into the ambulance, and unbeknownst to us, they strip-search him. So a couple minutes later, he comes out, and Calvin says, well, that was strange. And Butch says, yeah, for the first time in my life, I'm glad they found skid marks. <laughs> <laughs> Calvin couldn't ask a second question. <laughs> As we come to a, a close on this second part of our American Le Mans series special, I would like to ask all of you, please, for... The abiding memories, the things that you would take away from uh, from the series, some of those, may, maybe a, a little nugget. You've you've shared a few, but uh, let's let's start with you, Joe. That 
what would you have that you would take away as being something which perhaps sums it up? There may be two or three. I don't know. Uh, this is very self-indulgent of me, but it's got absolutely nothing to do with the racing. Um, it's the friendships. It's the friendships that I acquired by being involved in that series. Um, some of them will live on forever. You know, Jim Roller, who I'm talking to now, Chuck Dressing, um, who I love dearly, uh, Tim Pendergast, who I see regularly. We all see Tim regularly. And there are lots of others, you know. I mean, it was quite – we were quite a family. We were quite a circus that were traveling around the United States and, you know, going to ball games, going to baseball games in the in the downtime with, with, with Nishi and Brabs and – other people that would just tag along, you know, it's all of that. It's the kind of family that was created that to this day, you know, Paul Ryan comes to mind. Paul was the Michelin um, media guy. Um, People, people who I got to know and love in the American Le Mans series, who I was messaging two weeks ago for information for the, our Daytona broadcast. These were all contacts and partnerships and and relationships that I acquired during those years, during those early years of the American Le Mans ship, uh, uh, American Le Mans series, and that's that's the most prized thing that I will take away from that series. It goes without saying, the racing was fin- uh, fantastic. I can still close my eyes and see McNish put in that lap time that put him on pole at Sonoma when I want to. But, you know, the, the overriding thing that I'll take away from the American Le Mans series is the, is the friendships that I acquired. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Graham, what about you? What are your takeaways? That that was my answer, too. So thanks, Joe. <laughs> Sorry, man. I'm glad he asked me first. Thinking on my feet. No, I mean, seriously, there is so much you take away from this series. Um, I will always, always, always be able to now close my eyes and picture any one of those amazing circuits that we visited um, and know that chances are I won't go and visit them again now, but I thoroughly enjoyed them when I did. And the first time at each new venue, that was that was something always something special because mm. to me in the first the first couple of series that I did every time I went across the pond it was to somewhere where I had never been before I may have seen it on TV but it is not the same you don't get the elevation you don't get the the, the banter you don't get any of that and and I just adored the whole experience um, and if I have to if I have to single out one race. That, that stuck in my mind more than any other, it's that one visit to Washington, um, which may seem a very odd choice given some of the spectacular circuits we went to, and that was in a parking lot, but it was just such an intense race, an intense heat. The conditions were absolutely hideous, um, but, the, but the event was fabulous. And, I've heard uh, the stories and- of, the ni- of the night after the race as well, Tyler. It was the night before. Leave that alone. Oh, really? Oh, really? Leave that alone. A a certain nightclub in a disused warehouse, and oh, my goodness me. Yeah, yeah, there there was not much sleeping done in preparation for that race, which was then held in sort of over 100-degree heat. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. 
but it was, it was <laughs> he, he, he perspired all the alcohol out the next day is what he's trying <laughs> exactly. to do exactly exactly and yeah. that 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 was where i first had my the the soles of my trainers uh, uh, temperature tested by one of the tire technicians because <laughs> i couldn't believe how hot my feet were and and then i had to interview brabs who told me that his feet in the panels were even hotter which you can only imagine how that how hideous that must have been yeah, but, that yeah, been, uh, quite something. Jim, what about you? What about your uh, your abiding memories? Well, I'm going to echo family. Um, I've got so many abiding memories. I'll, I'll uh, heck, we could fill another hour and people would fall asleep. But um, we, it, it, whether like Graham and like Joe, there was some first for me. I was introduced to the Nurburgring. I'll never forget that. It's still my favorite places. Joe talks about going and being in awe that when you go through the gate of a place, well, yeah, the Nürburgring was it for me. I was able to go to Australia for the first time. And that's the one race that I will never forget. The race of a thousand years um, that, we, that we had there. Broad eating contests at Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin, where I am the grand champion eating 24 brats in one weekend and lived to tell the tale. <laughs> Um, but, but family, 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 uh, we did something on the television side that is very seldom done. We, we put a group together in 2002 and that group of people stayed together from 2002 until the merger in 2013. And during that time, the radio people got incorporated as well. So Joe and John and everybody that was working on ALMS radio, uh, would be would be together to the point where they they plugged my IFB, which is the thing I use to talk to the announcers when we're doing a race, in so that I could talk on the air to John. That's how that's how much of a group we were. Uh, Silverstone in 2000, uh, we almost lost one of the member of the family, and Jim Martin, God rest yeah. his soul, had a horrible accident. He survived the accident, but I saw. You know, Don Pano sending his private jet to Toronto, Canada, pick up Jim Martin's wife to bring her to England because Jim's state was was such that she needed to be there. It took him a month before he could get out of the hospital. And by the end of that 2000 season, he was back at the microphone. So it was a wonderful comeback. But that family atmosphere and the friends, um, I get choked up talking about it. Um, the friends that I met, and it still have today, uh, whether it be you, Paul, or Joe, or Graham, or Hindoff, or Eve, or any of the folks that, that were associated with that. You know, um, Joe mentioned Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan was the PR man when we went to Australia. He was the PR man for the race of a thousand years. He did such a good job. He was hired and moved to America. He now has a, a family. He lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Again, that's someone we keep in contact with. I would have never met Paul Ryan if it wasn't for the American Le Mans series. My life is so much richer because of it. Thank you for that, Jim. That's uh, probably the, the best place to leave it. Don't forget that the, the radio show is broadcast on radio show channel RS1 on the last Wednesday of each month. Um, or you can shout at your smart speaker and say, uh, play the Historic Racing News podcast and with a bit of luck, it will. If there's anything you'd like us to talk about on a special feature in future, let us know at Hist Racing News. You can get to me at Tarsi Tarsi 
or go onto the Historic Racing News Facebook page. But uh, in the meantime, I would like to thank my guests. A special thanks to Johnny O'Connell. My name is Paul Tarsi. I hope you've enjoyed this American Le Mans Series special edition. As always, if you have been, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.